0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Line 6. Line 6 is a musical instruments manufacturing company that specializes in guitar amp and effects modeling, and makes guitars, amps, effects pedals, and multi-effects. We introduced the world's first digital modeling amp, and we're behind the groundbreaking pod Multi-Effect, which revolutionized the industry with an easy way to record guitar with great tone. Line 6 will always take dramatic leaps so you can reach new heights with your music. And now your host, Kurt Ballew.
1: Welcome to the URM podcast. I'm your guest host, Kurt Ballew. And on this episode, we're doing Dear Kurt, where you guys wrote in and asked me questions and I'm going to do my best to answer them. If you enjoy this episode and want to submit future questions for part two of Dear Kurt, send an email to al.urm.academy with the subject line, Dear Kurt. You should also check out my earlier appearance on the URM podcast. It's episode 18. So make sure when you email, it's al E-Y-A-L, at URM.academy. I've been really busy lately. I just got off tour with my band Converge. Uh, we were on tour with Neurosis and Amon ra in the eastern U.S. and Canada, and it was absolutely amazing. Neurosis are an incredible band and one of the most inspirational bands I've ever listened to and ever had the pleasure of sharing the stage with. And Amon ra are old friends of mine as well, and, and also an incredible band from Belgium. So if you get a chance to check them out, you absolutely should. They have a new record coming out soon. And if you're not familiar with Neurosis, you need to be. Uh, The tour was incredible, packed houses every night and everyone really got along well and had fun. I thought we actually played pretty well. I haven't, I haven't really been feeling great about how i've personally been playing for a while but I've, i'm feeling feeling good i'm feeling back in my stride we um converge my band has been recording new material lately so i've been playing guitar a lot and uh getting the chops back to where they they need to be i've also been busy building pedals i was actually building stuff backstage on this tour and selling stuff at the merch table which was awesome so that i had i had something to do um during my downtime on tour which you know i'm, I'm not and you know, i'm You guys are all, I'm sure, really busy people with, like, recording, and, you know, some people are in bands or have day jobs, and you got a lot of stuff to juggle, and, you know, people like us are accustomed to always moving, and when you're on tour, sometimes you're just kind of sitting around waiting for your turn to do whatever you need to do, and I find that painfully boring, and there's only so much internet out there, Uh, so I'd rather spend my time uh, building something, doing something productive, so doing that on this past tour was really awesome. So I came home from that tour and jumped right back into some studio work. Uh, there's a record I've been working on for a while. I actually just finished it five minutes ago. Um, it's band called The Armed from Detroit, who are good friends of mine, and I've worked with them a bunch in the past, and they sort of started out um, somewhat techie, mathy, metallic hardcore, but they've really evolved into something entirely their own, and it's... It's been pretty awesome to be along for the ride, and this this new album is uh, just light years ahead of anything they've done before. Really, anything that I've I've heard, it's really interesting thing to mix because uh, it's just just nothing boilerplate about it. Like it's totally outside my comfort zone. It's it's almost entirely. I I actually I track the drums here at God City, uh, my studio, but everything else uh, they track themselves, and it's like. It's more of a sound collage than a traditional kind of recording. Um, There's basically nothing in these mixes that follow any kind of normal musical conventions that I've that I've followed in the past. I mean, usually there's things that are objectively like a good bass sound, a good guitar sound, so forth and so on. None of of those things are true in this case. It's all entirely subjective stuff, all about the feeling and not about the, you know, the actual sound quality, which is, you know, unusual, but also really liberating for me. It's, it's, super fun to work on stuff when where there's really no rules but it's also super challenging to try to get somebody's artistic vision across when it's you know entirely subjective stuff you know you, you know that they want something to sound totally fucked up and mangled but their version of fucked up and mangled is maybe not the same as your version of fucked up and mangled um, and to try to f- find out what they want is uh, a <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot lost in translation. There's a very very strong uh, reason for recording yourself when you make subjective music like that. Um, but you know I kind of come I kind of come from a similar background to them, so I sort of get what they're doing. But it's it's been a, an interesting ride. And then now I've got uh, so that project just wrapped. I've got an EP from Gate Creeper to mix before I head out on, on tour again later in the week. I'll be going to Europe to play a few festivals and some headlining shows along with our friends in Gorguts Havoc and Revocation. So that should be awesome too. And then uh, back here and back to work making records for the rest of the year and a few more, a few more tours, a few more festivals as well. So it's a really busy time for me right now, but uh, you know, it's better to be busy than bored. So anyway, we take a swig of water here and we'll get on to the questions. Water is delicious. All right. So the first question comes from Michael Cooper. Michael asks, Hey, Kurt, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm wondering what your opinion is on giving a band creative input. What circumstances would cause you to interject creatively? And what topics do you find yourself most often, often giving input on? Songwriting, gear choices, et cetera. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Michael. Um, I kind of scale my creative input uh, on a lot of things based um, you know, on how much my input is desired, um, and that's how much does the band really desire, not how much do they say they desire. Because a lot of bands say like, "Oh, dude, we totally want your input," and then when it comes down to it, when you're like, "Well, maybe you should," you know, rethink that 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 thing you belabored for. You know, months in the recording and the practice space. Um, Then they start to go like, oh, maybe we actually don't want your opinion, even though we like records you've done in the past. So, you know, it comes down to like, you know, does the band really want my opinion or do they just say they want my opinion? And then also how much time are they spending at my studio? Is there adequate time to really give my opinion or am I just, you know, am I recording a band for a few days and then you know, just documenting what they're doing, or are they here for a month and really trying to shape an album? And you know, and or is it somewhere in between that? So I'll scale how much input I put in based on that, and also in terms of like pre-production with demos and stuff like that. The longer the longer projects, I'll get more involved, and the shorter projects, I'll be less involved. Uh, but you know, ultimately, I believe that the um, the band gets the final say and all of that. Um, some people will consider a band's audience their client or a band's record label their client. For me, it's really the band more than anything else. Like, I don't really give a shit that much if, you know, the record label thinks it's marketable or, um, you know, if it's what the band's audience wants to hear or anything like that. I'm really just trying to make this a um, a pleasant recording experience that the the band You know, then band can create a record that they're really proud of. If if they're proud of it and and happy and enjoyed their time here, then then I'm happy, and that matters to me more than you know something being um, commercially viable or pleasing to the record label or anything like that. I think the thing that I'm always giving input on is the sounds. And the sounds obviously start with the sounds coming from the room. So drums, drum head selection, cymbal selection. Um, You know, a lot of drummers and musicians in general tend to pick gear that sounds good live. In a lot of cases, sounding good means sounding loud live or gear that's really durable. So, like, when I see a drummer come in with, like, super thick cymbals and, like, really super durable, like Aquarian drum heads. And I know they probably picked that stuff more because it wore well and they didn't have to replace it all the time and not because it was what actually sounded good. A lot of times the stuff that like breaks more readily is the stuff that sounds better. So we may make some changes to to their gear. Um, I always try to listen to what they sound like on their own gear first, if they have their gear with them. Um, If they flew out to record and they're borrowing stuff, then I try to give them some time on my gear to turn knobs and play around with different things and try to see what they you know what they gravitate towards and you know makes make some suggestions of my own if we're really button heads over a sound I think that they have the wrong sound um you say it's a guitar like I might just set up two amps and record them simultaneously one being like a kind of sound that I think would work well and the other is their sound and a lot of, in a lot of cases um you know, bands will prove me wrong and I, I love it when that happens because that's that's when I learn about sound um You know, and so I try to be open minded and just sort of listen to what's going on in the room and how it works together before I butt my nose in. But I you know, I always end up doing that and it's usually fairly welcome, especially in like the guitar overdub phase when we're doing all the ear candy stuff. People love it when I just kinda pull out tons of pedals and we start messing around making making noises. That's always really fun for me and I do that quite a bit. I probably do that a lot more than I say, like, hey, you know what? This chorus should go twice as long or something like that because more often than not, the bands that I'm recording have song structures that are like you know, A, B, C, G, B, C, F, E, D, B, B. Something stupid like that. So, you know, when 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 a singer has written lyrics around some sort of nonsensical song structure, uh, it's really hard to tweak the, the song arrangements without completely destroying their their lyrical flow. So, more often than not, I'm not able to to do that kind of stuff, or at least not as much as I would like. All right. So I think that gets that one. The next question comes from Raleigh Ulug. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, Dear Kurt, can you talk about the guitar and bass rigs, including mics and pre's if possible, on Black Breath's Slaves Beyond Death? I've never heard an HM2 tone so searing and huge, but not annoying or tinny. Any details would be much appreciated. Oh, and Raleigh also asks, did you ever know that you're my hero? Oh, thank you, Raleigh. That's very that's very nice of you. I did not know that I was your hero, but um, it's good to know now. Um, so that record, I don't know, it was like four years ago, three, four years ago. Um, so I don't really remember all of the details. I do remember that we, they flew out for that one, and we borrowed a... Um, a PVVTM 60 from somebody locally. And because that's, that's, they use one P, VTM 120s at home. And I think we also paired that with an Ampeg V4. And they probably went into my Emperor 6x12s, but I don't really remember which, which cabs we used. And um, I think we may have used my Sparrow Sun combo. A little bit in the mix, but I believe most of it was the VTM with just a regular HM2. You know, we tr- we lined up a bunch of different HM2 clones, and, um, and I think the band were just you know they always played with the the original HM2s with batteries, um, not power supplies, and in the loop of a Boss gate pedal. Um, because it, the, the boss gate pedals, they, they seem to think that they affect the sound. I've never really noticed that, but um, definitely does sound different with batteries versus a, a power supply. Um, but you know the, the gate on those... The, those boss gates are pretty cool because they have a loop, so um, the gating action is keyed off the guitar signal rather than the distorted signal, whereas... Um, you know, there's basically like a detector path and then like an audio path. So the detector path is whatever's coming into the input, in their case, just a guitar. And then the audio path is whatever's in the loop. So the uh, HM2 is being gated, um, but the the gating action is being triggered off the raw guitar signal. So it's much more accurate than if you put like a gate after distortion pedal with all of like the noise from all the gain, you know, the di- the. The signal to noise ratio is way smaller in that case than um, than the the sort of dynamic range of just a raw guitar, so that worked out really well. Um, but yeah, they, they like the original HM2. There's just something about where the mid range on those things sits that works better for them than any of the clones that we tried. And I had you know maybe at the time probably three or four different clones, um, and I've I've amassed more since then, and then also gotten rid of some since then as well. But that's what worked best for them. Um, With the HM2 sound, it really all comes down to gain staging. Um, I think it was, you know, the color sounds cranked on, on both... The high color sound actually a high and a mid. They're just they're gang together, and they're the frequencies are fairly close together. Um, but it is actually a high and a mid that you're boosting at the same time when you boost the high color sound. Um, and then volume was probably cranked, and distortion was probably down pretty low. Really, it's just like an EQ and a boost more than it is a distortion. And that went into VTM. I think I want to say like the low mid dip switch was engaged, but I'm not positive about that. And, um, you know, EQs are probably set around 6. I can't remember where the gain and and master were set, but that's really the key, is getting that gain and master in the right spot. You know, like, if you're you're a little too high, the low-mid fills in too much, and you'll lose that HM2 character Um, because the HM2 character has a lot to do with there being like a suck in the low mid somewhere around like I think it's like 270 hertz or something like that Um, and if you crank up the preamp gain on the amp too much it'll sort of Fill in and, and smear that dramatic EQ that the dsm M two provides. Um, whereas, but then if you don't have the gain up enough, it sounds really kind of phony and like a canned sound. So it's it, it's really a matter of getting those two gain controls, both the preamp and the master, at right at the sweet spot. And you know the master probably has more to do with um, the the speaker cabinet and the interactivity of you know how much are those speakers compressing uh, versus having headroom. Um, but yeah the preamp you really hear a big difference in the in the EQ so we messed with that for a while um, and you know got a cool sound they also can play their asses off and uh, I think I think it was just I think it was just less Paul custom with like PAFs too uh, but the, you know, the pickups are huge going into uh, an HM2 my, my preference is actually like EMGs going into an HM2 because that pedal is so kind of smeary that if you put a lot of bottom end to it it's just not very clear so I like having something like pickups with a little bit less bottom end like an EMG or even just like an EQ pedal or something or a tube screamer in front of the um, in front of the HM2 to scarve the bottom a little bit to tighten things up I don't believe we did any of that terms of mics ugh, i really couldn't tell you probably like a 121 off to the side of the cone and then you know either a high lpr 30 or a 57 or something like that near the edge of the dust cap and then blended together on the way in um you know no di's or anything like that um i just i like I've, i really feel like guitar players interact with the sound that they hear coming out of the speakers when they're tracking. So for me, it always makes sense to record the guitar player playing through the actual sound that's going to be on the album so that they're totally interactive with that that real sound. Uh, otherwise, you're kind of flying blind. So I think that's, that's probably... Oh, and, and then I bet, I, bet, I bet the dynamic was going into... Um, a uh chandler ltd one mic preamp and the ribbon was probably going into thermionic culture early bird mic preamp but i can't be entirely certain about that stuff but really the sound from that thing it's getting the amp right getting the amp sounding correct in the room more so than it is um, the miking or even the mixing all right so i think that answers that one The next question comes from Eric Berdignoli. Hey, Kurt. This question is inspired by your offer to record anti-Trump songs for free from a few months back. Do you feel that modern bands with political messages need to be more direct with their lyrics and message than many are? Or is it beneficial for a band to keep their political beliefs vague to avoid alienating the portion of the country that disagrees with them? Thanks. I think whatever political message a band attaches to themselves is in, entirely up to them and whatever they are comfortable with. You know, if you have, if you have a message, and you are knowledgeable about the facts to back up the message, and the entirety of your band is on board and willing to defend that message, and um, you know, you have a microphone, you can use it, and you have a voice, you have an audience, and and you should use that that voice and that um, to get out to your audience, even if it's just a matter of. You know, even if you're preaching The Converted and you just want to inspire yourself to be better and to be more active, then that's awesome. You should do that. Um, I would never encourage a band to to portray themselves politically in any way that they're not, especially not for any kind of commercial reasons. Um, you know, if you don't have the stomach for it or if you don't if your band is not unified in their political ideas or you just don't feel like it's appropriate for the aesthetic of your band, then you don't need to do it. Um, if you do, then you can. So, I don't know. It's just, I, I wanted I, you know, my, my band is not particularly outwardly political, but we are all very uh, left-wing political people. And personally, I wanted to do what I could to, to play a role, to give other bands a voice. And I, I have some resources Um in that I have a recording studio, and I had a, a bit of free time, a bit of rare free time, um, and I was I was pretty upset with what was going on with this administration at that point in time, and obviously still am, and uh, I wanted to give... People who might not otherwise have, a, have an opportunity to come record with me, an opportunity to record with me for free and, and get their message out there as, as best they could. So I was happy to, uh, to help out. The next question comes from, oh, my God, how do I say this name? Kiriakos Sploot? Is that cut off? I don't know. It just says SPL. I don't know. Well, whatever your name is, I'm sorry. Uh, Thank you for writing. He says, or he or she says, Dear Kurt, as an engineer and guitar player, how do you change hats while recording your own parts? Any advice? Editing is a major part to making things sound tighter and therefore bigger. Since you are minimizing phase issues between sources, what is the point of too much for you? So I guess those are two questions. Uh, As an engineer and guitar player, how do I change hats when recording my own parts? Um, that of course is really difficult. Um, and the more I've done it, the easier it's become. And I also have to rely on my bandmates a lot. So when they're recording, I'm sort of wearing my producer hat. And when I'm recording, they get to produce me to a certain extent. Um, but it is, it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of, um, keeping your ego in check and, um, just a lot of self-doubt a lot of self-loathing and sometimes you just got to stay the course and and trust that you're correct other times you have to be psycho and just do things over and over and over and over again and then eventually give up when you realize you can't do it as well as you hoped you could um but it's never it's always emotional and it's <laughs> very rarely good but um you know, that, that's the time where you call upon your peers, other recording engineers, and, and your bandmates and whatnot to be the voice of reason. Um, the next question being, uh, editing is a major part to, to making things sound tighter and therefore bigger, since you're minimizing phase issues between sources. What is the point of too much for you? Okay, I think what this person is asking is about editing individual microphones on a drum set, for example. Um, obviously, one there's no phasing between microphones when there's only uh, one microphone capturing a signal. obviously there there can be um, acoustic phasing. Like if you have a microphone near a floor, um, the reflection off the floor may be subtly delayed in time versus um, the, the source arriving at the microphone. But let's, let's not worry about that for the sake of this conversation. Um, We're just talking about the phasing that happens between microphones. Um, And, Yes. If you're not hitting the floor tom, you might want to turn the floor tom mic off so that um, you're not capturing the snare drum and. The, the cymbals through the floor tom microphone this is a trick i use a lot um and i i feel like it's it's very beneficial at least in you know aggressive loud kind of music where you're looking for a really direct punchy in the face kind of sound if you're looking for a more like smeared vibey sound some of that like sympathetic resonance that happens in say the floor tom when you hit the bass drum or in the rack tom when you hit the snare drum or whatever, like you may want a lot of that stuff in your mix. For me, I'm, I generally do not and I try to get I try to use as few microphones as I can in order to capture a full sound. Um, I'd, I'd love it if I could do the Glenn Johns method or something for the type of bands that I record. but unfortunately like most drummers are not that well balanced in the room, especially with the amount of compression required to keep drums you know sitting nicely in a mix with, you know, a, a huge wall of compressed, distorted guitars. Um, unfortunately, it's just not really feasible in or for me to get a, 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 an appropriate drum sound with only a few microphones. I end up using maybe 12 to 16 mics on a drum set. Um, that's that's what works for me. But yeah, I definitely edit stuff quite a bit to, uh, to tighten things up. All right. Our next question comes from Orion Lund. Hello, Kurt. I've been waiting for another podcast f- with you for ages. Love the other one. Really started to get into your production after Carello Talk, which are, one, which are from my neighborhood. They went to your studio to record Miod. It's such a fantastic sounding album. But on to my questions. All right, so... Well, I actually recorded Carrello Talk twice. I recorded their debut, Carrello Talk, as well. Uh, anyway, uh, first question he asks is... Um, Uh, Sorry if it's a she. I actually don't know the genders of some of these names. It's always a sausage party in recording, so I'm assuming it's male, but uh, apologies if you are not. Um, What is your approach to getting these really aggressive drum room sounds? I think it's really unique, and I can immediately hear if something's been recorded at your place from the drum sound. Well, uh, my live room is not huge. It's about 10 feet by 30 feet, um, or three meters by 10 meters and and it's pretty pretty treated i've got some owens corning 703 on the ceiling um that's that's suspended from the ceiling as a cloud so it's picking up both on both sides of the the suspended cloud and then i also have some of that on two of the four walls and um well there's actually more than four walls because it's sort of an odd shaped room um and there's also a diffuser on two of two of the walls, so the sound is not particularly reflective in there. And, and what reflections there are, there's no, there's not much of parallel. There's a little bit of parallel ceiling to floor, but for the most part, there's no parallel surfaces in there, and that's just sort of an accident. Um, my studio had a well-designed control room, and then the live room is just a leftover space. But it's um, it's an asymmetrical space um, that is fairly diffuse in. And, and dry sounding. So the, the room tone around the kit is actually really controlled. However, I have um, a small isobooth and a bathroom that are adjacent to the live room, both of which are, they're both fairly small, um, but they're both very reflective. They have hard floors, hard walls, um, and no acoustic treatment other than whatever Crap happens to be gathered in those rooms, so they're pretty reflective. So what I and and from from inside these rooms, there's no direct line of sight to the drum set. So what I tend to do is open up the doors to to the bathroom and to that ISO booth, place on directional microphones inside each of those rooms, and then um, and then record drum sounds in there. And what what that gives me is. Um, a pretty bombastic drum room sound that doesn't have direct line of sight to the kit. So because it doesn't have direct line of sight to the kit, it's like pure reflections that those microphones are picking up, which has the added benefit of not having like a direct correlation to the close mic sound. It's it's like a reverb. It almost has like a, it has a bit of built-in pre-delay, usually about um, 20 milliseconds. But also um, it's the transient response is kind of, is kind of smeared um, so it's not like this attacky thing that I have to it's not like a delay on a close mic where there's like an attack that could sound like a comb filtering or something with the close mic it's it's all diffused sound um, so it just kind of fills in the ambience of the drum set without interfering with the attack of the drum set so it ends up working out pretty nicely um, and uh, if you've watched my my creative live class um, if, or if you purchased that then you Probably got the um, the the room impulses that I included with that class, um, the convolution reverb based on on those sounds, and that stuff's also contained within the the drum library that I have available through Room Sound. Um, yeah, so so that's what I do with the room sounds, and yeah, then definitely because Conveller talks like got a lot of like mid tempo stuff, it's it's heard pretty prominently on that record. Faster stuff that I do, I'm not able to use as much of that that rim sound just because it gets too smeary. Uh, All right. Next question is about the HM2 guitar sound. I think I answered that one earlier. And that was their two questions. Okay. Next question is from Adam Train. Hey, Kurt, I read somewhere, Wikipedia, so definitely reliable, nyuck, 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 that when you did "From Parts Unknown" by "Every Time I Die," you tracked most of the vocals in one day because because Keith had laryngitis. First off, is that true? And if so, fucking how? Uh, I actually don't remember to be honest with you. Um, it was a few years ago. I've made a lot of records since then, and I mean Keith is a total machine. He has an incredible voice and an incredible work ethic, and is he's just driven. Unlike a lot of uh, well more so than a lot of people that I've recorded I mean everybody I record is driven but the guy the guy really has um, a lot of drive behind him um, super enthusiastic person and really cares a lot about what he does and um, you know I, I seem to remember we were recording in the fall the weather wasn't great no one nobody was feeling great and um, I mean it was the early Late winter, or something. I actually don't. Even, I don't even remember. But I remember that Keith is great, and he busts his ass to do a killer job on that record, and he d- definitely delivered. All right. And our last questioner is AJ Viana, and AJ says, "What's on your list of gear you can't live without?" Actually, AJ has a lot of questions. So here's the first one: What's on your list of gear you can't live without? let's see when it comes to recording gear I gonna say it's my control room so I have a and whenever, whenever people ask me about what gear they should get when they're putting together a studio, I tell them they really should not skimp on their monitors and monitoring environment. Because if you can't hear what's going on properly, then you'll never make good decisions. So for me, I'm using Adam S3A monitors in my control room, um, which is... Somewhat treated, but it is acoustically designed. It's a reflection free zone style control room. There's a lot of like 30 degree angles in this room. I think it has let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight walls. Um not like a actual octagon but it is um it's all a bunch of 30 degree angles um you not obviously don't need to work in a room of this shape and i i mix a lot of stuff in my home studio too which is um rectangular and i'm able to get good results there too but um when i'm in the control room at god city i really know what stuff sounds like and i'm even at the point now where i'm not even hardly referencing anything at all I just know what stuff sounds like in here and, and there's like a symbiotic relationship to um, a monitoring environment that you're super familiar with and can trust that is more valuable than any piece of outboard gear beyond that um, some gear that I own that I really love mainly massive passives there's just so much you can do with them especially with the, um, the bandwidth control and the shelving filters you know, you see that kind of stuff in plugins all the time now, but you didn't really see that much with the analog gear, and it's hugely powerful. Um, you know, being able to create a subtle like, if you're like if you're boosting a low frequency to be able to create a little bit of a dip right before that frequency you boost can create a you know huge sense of of size that you would need two bands of a of a conventional equalizer to get, um, or the converse is true. Like if you're say cutting lows with a shelf, but have that that bandwidth control all the way to the right, then you're boosting sort of resonant frequency right before the, the roll off point, which is really nice for maintaining a sense of size of things that need some rumble or some plosives removed from them. So I love those EQs. use them all the time Um, for finishing mixes. I've got a tube tech SMC two B multiband compressor, that's awesome. Um, it really takes things from sounding like a rough mix to sounding like an album without a whole lot of work. It's easy to abuse, of course, as all multi-band processing is, but it's super powerful when used sparingly. I also have a ton of Day King gear. I think for whatever reason, like, peop, like Day King stuff is not revered the way that a lot of other boutique or even vintage stuff is revered, but it's like not that expensive for what it is and absolutely fantastic. Like, I track guitars and drums with the Day King mic prees and EQ's all the time, and I track with EQ on the way in. And I try to, you know, I generally try to, like, make decisions as I'm recording stuff because I feel like any decision you make during tracking affects every other decision that happens after it. And when you leave all your decisions towards the end, it's it can be really hard to make any decisions at that point. So I try to, like... I don't try to paint myself into a corner, but I definitely try to give myself a nudge in the right direction as I'm doing it. And the, the DAKING EQs are awesome for doing that. I can really, I can trust that things are going to sound great with them. And as long as I don't um, totally abuse the gain control, um, you know, I have a lot of gear here that, that I that I love and use regularly. But um, those are a few of the pieces that I think I couldn't live without. Beyond that. Um, you know, having a nice collection of instruments is really important to cymbals, guitars, pedals, cabinets, amps, just stuff to like swap out when bands come in with with gear that's not really working, which is pretty regularly having having some alternate instruments that they can try um, is hugely, hugely beneficial. All right. So on to your next question, AJ, when working with bands like Russian Circles. How involved if at all do you get with the overall tone and feel of the record? Well, generally speaking, when recording a band, especially a band like Russian Circles that sounds awesome just playing together in a room, I try to stay out of the way as best I can. Of course, you know, everything's it's happening in my room and it's filtering through my ears and I'm using my gear, so you know obviously like my sonic imprint is going to be on it whether I like it or not. But um you know when a band is really awesome on their own i just i try to stay out of the way as much as i can and let them do what they do and then just try to chime in when when things are slowing down or when when uh, someone needs a little push or when the inspiration's not there or, or a new inspiration is needed I'll, I'll i'll chime in and you know grab a pedal or swap out a symbol or you know, we in circles. We did some like wacky tape speed tricks for some songs, and you know, I think pretty much my entire control room floor was covered in pedals during guitar tracking. Um, so yeah, we definitely we definitely had a lot of fun on that record. Um, and I'm you know, if you listen to that record versus some of their other records, it doesn't sound the same. So I, you know, I mean, obviously they're. every time they make a record they've evolved as a band and you know it's not going to be the same record even if they did everything the same um but i think you really can hear um, my influence on that record versus versus the previous ones i'm really happy with it carl Safa also did an awesome job mastering it he's really good at um keeping things sort of warm and open and, and kind of dark sounding i um my only complaint about that record though is Dave was like really insistent on uh, he he recorded with his um his Vista Light kit, 26 uh, inch bass drum, I think fourteen and eighteen inch toms. Might have been a thirteen, but I think it was a fourteen inch tom, which are cool and they look awesome. And he used remote controlled sounds on the on the the drums which look awesome on Vista Lights, but I just don't love the way they sounded. There were like the. Maybe it's just. Maybe it's because it's a 20, a 26 inch kick, like, and it's so like 14 inches. I think it's 14 inches deep. It might be 16, but I think it was 14 inches deep. Um, the fundamental pitch is low, but it's just not like a lot of bass frequency coming off of it. It's just everything's kind of slappy. And you can really hear it in that first song, like the, the, um, tom sound kind of plasticky i really fought with that like they're kind of clicky and, and plasticky and that's just like between the vista lights and the controlled sounds um there's sort of no way around it they're super loud um but they're they're not they're not deep like the way that i would want them so you know that's that's the kind of that's an example of something where i Argued in favor of something with a band and then and lost and <laughs> allowed myself to lose, but I think um, if I get the opportunity to record them again, I'll probably put my foot down about that a little bit more. Next question from AJ is: How much are you doing, or how much mixing are you doing in the box versus out of the box? Well, I still don't think I have any releases with full in the box mixes. I've maybe mixed like a segue here or there for an album in the box, but for, you know, real, real song kind of album, album mixing, it's always, there's always the analog gear involved for me. And it might just be because of my age and the fact that I'm kind of from the last generation of, of people who grew up recording on tape machines and with mixing consoles and all that, um, that's how, I'm, that's how I'm comfortable, and that's how I think about music, and that's, um, you know, I've invested a lot of money in my studio to have a lot of analog gear, and so that's sort of what I'm, what I'm comfortable with. If I was starting over, if, if you gave me all the money for all the gear that I have right now and told me to start over, um, I might take a, I might take a different path, um, and I believe it's possible to make great sounding records in the box, but for me, um, I like having a console, and, but I don't use the console exclusively. Like, for example, I'm looking at my console right now, and this, this armed record that I just finished, you know, there's probably anywhere from 50 to 80 tracks per song, and I'm using six, 16 channels on my console. So I have um, channels one and two are stereo close drum mic uh, subgroup, and um, so that's maybe... Two to four kick channels, or maybe say two to six kick channels, um, three to three to six ch- snare channels, a few tom channels, and a um, center of kit mic, just like a, an Omni, kind of near the drummer's bass drumming knee. Um, that's all feeding into that bus. So those, so obviously the individual tracks um, of, of each of those microphones inside Pro Tools has some processing of its own. And then, like, all the different kick mics get sums to a master kick kick bus inside the box, which has some processing of its own. And then, um, you know, so the same same for for all that stuff. You know, there's a master snare bus, there's a master tom bus. And then that master kick snare and tom bus are feeding into a master close mic bus. And that master close mic bus is going out... Uh, out of uh, Burl Mothership converters into ToneLux TXC compressors on about fifty percent wet, and those things are awesome. It's r- really um, under hyped compressor, but th- those things—it's like the next evolution beyond an API twenty five hundred. Same designer, um, things can like turn a snare drum into a cowbell or a wood block or something it's crazy how much attack you can add with with those things they're great compressors Um, so I have those on on the close mic bus then there is uh, the next two channels channels three and four is a stereo ambient mic bus so all of the um, you know Symbol mics, overheads, spot symbol mics, different layers of room mics, um, special effects of drums, drum reverb, drum or drum specific reverb. That's stuff's all going out the ambient ambient bus. They're also going through some TXCs on about fifty percent, but they're just kind of barely kissing the signal there. Uh, there is no master drum bus that combines those two, so the close mics um, are not affecting the compression on the ambient mics. Um, then there's also a stereo channel for drum machine stuff. So auxiliary percussions, electronic percussion, 909, stuff like that um, that's in this mix is going out those things. There's not a whole lot of that. Um, I have a channel, a mono channel, that's a subwoofer, subharmonic synthesizer. So a lot of the bass drum, a little bit of the bass guitar, and a bunch of the um, keyboard-based stuff. Is all feeding into the subharmonic synthesizer, which is just an aux. So they, they also, have, you know, they obviously have their dry channels as well. Uh, but they're being being uh, summed together, compressed, subharmonic synthesized, then compressed again. And then that feeds mono channel on the console. Then there's a mono bass channel. There's very few stereo bass effects on this record, and if there are, they're either feeding into the guitar bus or the. Um, there's a master effects bus, so mono bass. But there's a bunch of mics on bass. Sometimes a um, little bit of DI here and there, a couple amp sims here and there, but mostly just a bunch of different mics on Kenny's bass rig. Um, that's being summed in the box and comes out. Comes out into the console. It's going through um, a massive passive. And a um, retro 176 compressor. Then we've got a master guitar bus. Um, there's a ton of guitar tracks. They're being summed down to stereo. Um, there's bus processing, different stuff for different songs. Sometimes there's actually distortion added on top of the guitars because they wanted like really nasty keyboardy sounding guitars. There's a lot of octave effects uh, done during the tracking stage. Um, there's distortion and compression and EQ added in the box um, and then out of the box there's a massive passive and uh, Dayking compressors the Dayking compressors are like super smooth really good at adding weight and presence to the guitar without brightening them Despite, I believe they are FET compressors but they're not like brightening FET compressors the way that, like 1176 is um, I'm actually not entirely sure about that though they might be diode bridge Um, it's it's like the original Deacon compressor so whatever that happens to be, it's real smooth sounding Um, and then massive passive, adding presence and some low mid weight and kind of rolling off rolling off some like rumble with the uh, the built in filters and then also uh, cutting a bit of uh, 3.9k just with um, just passively cutting a bit of 3.9k to get rid of some harshness I, I don't like to uh, low-pass guitars very much. Uh, I'd rather use some sort of bell at the harsh frequencies. A lot of times, I find like if I'm recording a band with like dual rectifiers or something, or fifty-one fifty something that's really sizzly, I'll end up just notching like eleven k or so out of the signal in the box. Um, I didn't have to do that in this case, but looks like I looks like I am low-passing at like eighteen k, but I'm also um, you know boosting a. a bunch of different highs and then there's that there's that cut at like 3.9 to get rid of some harshness uh, so the guitars are still nice and open but don't have excessive high end uh, then I've got a, a master keyboard bus uh, I think I'm not, I'm just doing a little bit of console EQ on that but there's a ton of you know internal processing I think I'm using the, the Massive Passive plug-in on that which is pretty good, it's not entirely as good as the hardware but it's, but it's definitely good um then vocal bus, a bunch of internal stuff, a bunch of gain kind of stuff happening inside the box and various plugins ins and slapbacks and stuff. And then um, that's going through... Um, the only thing analog, aside from a little bit of console EQ on the, the vocal bus, is um, Requisite Pal Plus Mark 3s, which are like a mastering-grade optical compressor. Just imagine like a really super nice LA-2. And then finally, there is an effects master. So, pretty much anything that's left, like reverbs, delays, um, all that kind of stuff is coming out the console as well. So, I have master control of that. Um, you know, within groups, there are some things. Like, there's some vocal only reverbs that are in the vocal group. And there's like, there might be guitar only delays that are in the guitar group, or drum only del- delays or reverbs that are in like the ambient drum group. But then, Generally, like, I'll send a like if I'm just going for like a realistic room sound from a reverb, like, I'll send a little bit of reverb from the master bus of, of each of these instruments into like a room sounding reverb, and then there might be some special effects reverbs, and all that stuff's getting summed out channels 15 and 16, and then from there, um, uh, I'm going out the, uh, the stereo. Insert of the console, which nice. This console has a switchable stereo insert. Um, that's going into an Avenson blend for wet dry control. Oh, wait, oh, sorry. Actually, no, it's going first. It's going into a dangerous back EQ, And I'm just doing a little bit of like high passing at like 70 kilohertz just to help out the converters. Obviously, like it's pretty well beyond what you can hear, but it does help the converters um, sound a little more natural if you get rid of all the ultrasonics. Um, low passing around 24 Hertz and then just took like a little bit of shelving boosts on both the highs and the lows. Um, I do that first so that the entire signal is is hearing that EQ and getting the benefits of, of that um, the high pass and low pass filtering. And then from there it goes into an Avinson blend, which is a um, which is a, a wet dry effects loop processor. So the remainder of my stereo bus can be controlled wet-dry with, with that control. And what the remainder of the bus is is just two boxes. There's first uh, the Tech SMC-2B, which is a um, stereo multiband um, compressor. Um, I think it's just tube makeup. I'm actually not sure what type of compression action it uses. I think it's tube makeup. And I don't think it's a very VariMu. Um, I think it's just tube tech, so they stick some tubes in it so it's all tubey. But, I don't know, things fucking sounds good. Um, so I gently kind of kiss the three bands with that, spend some time kind of dialing in um, the speed, especially of the release of the low band to make sure it's appropriate for the song and um, and making sure that the crossover points are appropriate for the song. That's followed up by um, a fairly fast-acting but gentle... Um, Dramastic Audio Obsidian, which is an SSL-style compressor. And uh, I think I'm, you know, generally, like, hitting that between, like, 0 and 4 dB of gain reduction, at least on the the VU meter. You know, I'm, obviously, it's, like, hitting a little bit more than that in reality because the meter just can't track it that fast. Uh, and then that, that those two boxes go back into the Avenson Blend um, effects return, and I have that on about 70% wet. Um, so some of the natural attack gets through uncompressed and then so the the master engineer has a little more room to work with and i don't print stuff super oh and then that whole thing um sometimes i print stuff to tape i I do have an atr102 but in this case uh i'm using um the uad atr102 plug-in at uh i think it's quarter inch 15 ips might be thirty ups. I think it's fifteen hips. Um That has a nice kind of scoopiness to it that I find pretty flattering, especially for mixes that should be kind of blown out. I can um, I can get it kind of crunchy with that, and this is a fairly blown out sounding record um, and aggressive. So I, I like the way that that sounds for aggressive music. Um, if it was something mellow,er I might use a different tape speed setting or, or not at all. Um, but you know, I keep keep my um, mixed level fairly reasonable so the mastering engineer still has plenty of headroom uh, I know it's not necessarily the prevailing um, wisdom in the URM camp but I'm of the mindset that mastering should always be done uh, by a dedicated mastering engineer in a mastering studio and um, you know if there's if there are any problems with your listening environment with your speakers or with your own personal bias in in a mix then um you're not going to hear that if you're mastering your own material um and that's why you send it to a mastering engineer as mastering engineers um obviously they have their own bias and they have their own rooms but it's different than than your room so hopefully anything that is wonky with your mixes they'll catch and correct um now granted it can be a hard to find a great mastering engineer that you trust that does a good job, and I think a lot of people end up mastering their own stuff just because they're frustrated with um, with the mastering experiences they've had in the past. So, you know, don't don't give up. Spend some time working with different mastering engineers, and hopefully, you know, if you're if you have not found someone that, that you're comfortable with, um, you end up do finding someone that that works within your budget and delivers. Records back to you that are better than you could do yourself. You know, obviously, like, as a mix engineer with all this gear, I have some of the skill sets and you know a lot of the gear necessary to master records if I if I chose to. But um, with the great mastering engineers that I use, people like Alan Douches, Brad Boatwright, Carl Saf, Nixyampiello, Magnus Lindbergh, um, John Golden. Um, I, I've never been able to beat any of their masters, and I try. As, a, as, a, as an exercise to myself, I try to beat their masters, especially if it comes back and it doesn't sound right to me. Um, I'll try to beat their masters, and uh, I'm never able to. So there actually is a, a merit in someone who is a full-time mastery engineer. It's kind of like saying to a guitar player, like... You know, oh, you play guitar, so you can play bass. Yes, you can play bass. If you play guitar, you can play bass. If you play bass, you can play guitar. If you play drum set, you can play bongos. Um, But that does not mean that you're the best person for the job. You know, it really is a dedicated, dedicated craft. All right, so that was a long answer. Two more questions from AJ What are some of your favorite mixes that you didn't do? I think I'm just going to pass on that one just because um, at this point in my life I'm recording so much music that I'm not consuming a lot of music, so I'm not really listening to a lot of other people's stuff these days. All right, one last question from AJ Viana. On the album from Parts Unknown by Every Time I Die, how did you obtain such a sludgy overall tone but still have it be tight, clear, and hard-hitting? How much of that was from the band versus work on your end? Well, I think it was entirely from the band. I mean, there are, they're great players. They... Um, they're super driven they've been at it for a long time um they know sound they know it sounds good they know it sounds bad um they're uh, they have a strong sense of will and they play shit hard um so it's as simple as that it was really up to me to like stay out of the way and uh you know it's it sounds sludgy but it's not like it has like an overabundance of bottom end it's just maybe like uh we might have chose some really dirty distortion pedals for things um, or uh, chose to really use a lot of rim mics or something. I think, you know, both Both me and Every Time I Die are super influenced in, like, all the Midwestern noise rock stuff from the 90s. You know, like, I mean, Kittens, Jesus Lizard, Dazzling Kill The Cows, um, uh, Easy Action, Laughing Hyenas... Um, shellac I mean there's ton, tons of stuff like that where it's just like and basically the stuff that Albini would record um, hard hitting oh uh, you know Unsane perfect example you know l- listen to Unsane go see Unsane play um, and then think about how that would inform your musical decisions you know just tons of mid-range loud tube amps cranked greasy tones like Vibe way more important than clarity, but there still is clarity. Just because stuff's not super layered, you know, like like an Unsane record. Like listen to Unsane Visqueen, for example. Um, that's a great sounding record, um, and uh, you know, a lot of the verses are just one guitar track. Um, there's a guitar track and it's panned to one side, and then there's the room mic for that guitar track that's panned to the other side, and then maybe a second guitar kicks in for the chorus. But there's um, when you don't like overlayer stuff, then there's still a lot of space in your mix to have like cool character in the tones that you have, and um, I don't know. That's more important to me than having something that sounds objectively good or is louder or whatever. If it has like, if it has like a cool vibe, then it's going to draw me into the record and just feel a lot more compelling. So I think we have reached the end of this edition of Dear Kurt. Again, if you want me to do a part two, you're gonna to have to write into uh, A-L at urm.academy. So E-Y-A-L at urm.academy. And that's all for now. So I hope to hear from you guys soon.
0: The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Line 6. Line 6 is a musical instruments manufacturing company that specializes in guitar amp and effects modeling and makes guitars, amps, effects pedals, and multi-effects. We introduced the world's first digital modeling amp, and we're behind the groundbreaking pod multi-effect, which revolutionized the industry with an easy way to record guitar with great tone. Line 6 will always take your Dramatic leaps, so you can reach new heights with your music. Go to www.line6.com to find out more about Line Six. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com/podcast and subscribe today.